Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is AJ Vaden here today. And super excited to get to interview a a fellow Nashvillian today. And also, uh, David is a brand new acquaintance of mine. I actually got cold pitched him, which I... One out of a hundred times, we'll say yes to those, but I thought this conversation looked super interesting. So I thought this would be worth coming on to our show because he is teaching the business of expertise. And as you guys all know, we talk a lot about the importance of being an expert in your field on this show. So what a better way uh, to kick off today's show with some conversation around what it means to be an expert and the pros and cons and everything in between. So before I formally introduce David, I just want to uh, give you a little preview of why you need to stick around to the very end. I would uh, say these are some of the highlights that I kind of pulled out of this that I'm like, yeah, I want to know the answers to these things. Uh, So if you have a question around why long-term relationships could be dangerous for your advisory practice, then you're going to want to stick around. If you want to talk about productizing your service offerings, because I know so many of us are constantly going, man, like, how do I get out of the business of exchanging time for money, constantly time for money, then this is an interview for you. And if you want to just in general talk about how to position yourself as an expert, then this is a show that you don't want to miss. So stick around. Uh, Don't fast forward. Don't hang up early. Listen to the entire show. And then uh, you can also catch the recap episode shortly after this. So now let me formally introduce you to David Baker. Here's something that's fascinating. He grew up with a tribe of Mayan Indians (laughs) in Guatemala. And we were just talking. He said, why is your Zoom in Spanish? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was just in Mexico and I couldn't get it out. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I speak Spanish. I grew up in Guatemala, but not just grew up in Guatemala, grew up with Mayan Indians. He's also an airplane pilot, a photographer. Uh, he rides motorcycles. He lives here in Nashville, which is a super plus for me. But his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, USA Today, Inc. Magazine, Forbes. I could go on and on and on. But instead of me telling you about him, why don't I just introduce him? So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You got me all excited about sticking around for this. It's like, wow, that <laughs> sounds interesting. And how did I not pick up that you're in Nashville, too? I When you told me that just a minute ago, I thought, well, how have we not met? I know. Yeah, that's I, it's I, great. I, Thank you for having I me. Love getting to meet other people who live in Nashville, because I feel like so many of my friends today don't live here. So when I meet somebody else who's local, it's, it's an extra treat. So. As we get into this conversation, just to help our audience and me get to know you a little bit better, can you just kind of give us like a high level overview of how did you go from growing up in Guatemala to moving to Nashville, to writing books, to speaking and podcasting? Like, how did this all come about? Well, I'm a total fraud, and this is the I've chosen to say that on your podcast the first time. No, 
I my parents were medical missionaries. Uh, that's how I grew up in Guatemala. So lived in Costa Rica for a year while they learned Spanish, very poorly learned it. <laughs> and then we lived in Guatemala for 13 years. Dad was a dentist, mom was a nurse. And so I came to live in the U.S. when I was 18. And boy, we could talk for hours about how how many embarrassing situations there were. The first time I came to the U.S., right, I had no idea about anything here. And I went to school. Before that, basically taught myself. I didn't really go to formal school until I came to the U.S., high school, and decided I wanted an academic career. So spent five years in grad school and so on. And then one day, just with a lot of hubris, honestly, I was talking with my wife. I was sitting on the couch and I said, you know what? The ads in this local newspaper really suck. They're just like, I could do better than this. I don't know anything about it, but I think I could do better. So I started an ad agency, didn't know, had never worked at one, didn't know anybody else in the field, did it for six years. And it was a pretty ordinary average firm. You know, it, it was successful, but not wildly successful. But as a part of that process, I subscribed to a newsletter. And part of what came with that subscription is that you could ask the newsletter editor questions for free. I think it was that was his way of just staying in touch with the market. And one day I said to him, why don't you advise your clients rather than just doing a newsletter? Why don't you do consulting for them? And he gave me his reasons for why he wasn't interested, but he said, why don't you do it? And before I could even think about that, the answer to it, I he said, and I'll just put an ad in the newsletter and you just give me 10% of whatever you make. And I didn't think much would come of it, but it seemed like kind of an interesting idea. And people started calling and very quickly, within six months, it just completely took my life over. I think people were hungry for just business advice. And so that it was somewhat accidental, but I embraced it very quickly with sort of a combination of some expertise and a lot of curiosity and willingness to kind of be out in front of my skis a lot. And since then, obviously, it's been that just really started the process of learning. And so I just I feel like I'm just learning a lot all the time and helping people in the process. So that was 30 years ago, next March, when I started this firm and worked all across the world with thousands of firms and just really love what I do. So I I'm completely irrelevant to most of the world, but I want to be deeply relevant to a small part of it. And that's small consulting branding sort of firms. Well, I love that because I think that's all of our challenges, right? If we try to be everything to everyone, then we are nothing to no one. Right. Um, I love having that, you know, kind of niche focus. Now, and also it's like in the midst of all this other stuff you've been doing, you've also somehow managed to write five books. Six, but only four of them were any good. But so let's just say four. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so a huge part of the audience that listens to this show is also, you know, an aspiring author, aspiring speaker. And so what would you say is like, how have you written so many books? Like, what would you say is your inspiration? What's your process? And how do you find time to do that? And also the midst of all the other stuff you have going on? Mm. Gosh, I love that question. Not many people ask it. I really, really love that question. You know, I think it starts in my mind with having a business that makes enough money that I don't have to work all the time. So right. a business that delivers enough extra time for me to, without any guilt, spend time working on it. That's part of the answer, I think. The other is that I feel like at my core, 
I'm an author who happens to be a speaker and who happens to be a consultant. I'm really feel like I have to say things, even if nobody's listening, I have to say things. And so what really makes me think I love this question is, so I'm getting ready to do a talk next week and it's a new one. I never give the same talk again. I just can't do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying I can't do it. So I'm thinking about what am I going to talk about? And the topic is surely there's more. And then I realized, oh my gosh, do I really have anything new to say? Um, and I, I just, just for fun, I added up all the stuff I've written, and it ended up being two million four hundred thousand words over the last <laughs> published words. So, and a tenth of those are across all of the books, right? So ninety percent were in other things, articles or podcast episodes or whatever. And so many things hit me after I realized that it's like, okay. With a narrow focus, focus, you you never run out of things to say. Now, you think you're going to, but the narrower your focus, the more you never run out of things to say. I have more unwritten articles now where I have the idea than I've ever had in my life, even after written 2.4 million words. That's one thing. The other is that like, not that many people read the articles I write, but the articles create an audience who then are going to buy the books. And the articles are how I work out what I think. And those things get shaped into a book, right? So if I'd written a book without all of that, all those years of work writing articles, then I wouldn't have an audience and I wouldn't have thought through all of these things. So I feel like there's sort of this mix, this weird mix. You've got to have a blog or something that forces you on a regular basis. Maybe it's a podcast, whatever it is, that forces you to keep figuring out what you think. Mm-hmm. And then you turn that into a book, which then does so many other things for you, right? So to me, and I'll just end with this, and thank you again for the question. An author is somebody who uses a book to force the process of figuring out what you think about something. So it's not. The clarity comes in the articulation, not before. So I don't know what I think until I start writing. Mm. I'll never figure that out until I start writing. So it's not, oh, clarity. Now let me write that down. No, it's like until I I wrestle with articulating what I'm thinking, then the clarity comes. So to me, writing is how I figure out what I think. Mm, That's so good. And I loved your comment too about blogging or even podcasting or just creating content, whatever it is. It's like, that is the art of figuring out what you have to say. It's, it takes practice, right? It's like with anything in order to be good at anything, you have to do it a lot. And the same thing goes with our thoughts and what we have to say. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, so you're doing this podcast and you're doing it. I think it's twice a week, right? Or, you know, it's regularly, and there are probably times when you think, oh, today I'm so excited about. Then other times it's like, I don't know really what I'm going to say. I don't know. Do I have anything new to add? But this forces you to be on stage. And people like you and me and your listeners, we don't want to look stupid. We yeah. don't want to look stupid. And like, I want to stand in front of a group and then I want to open it up for questions. And I want to not fear a single question that would come my way. And unless you keep putting yourself on the stage in a light, you don't refine what you think, right? Because, and what forces you to refine it is you don't want to look stupid. That's just, mm. it's a natural instinct, right? Oh, I love that. It's the whole concept. It's like, I love that, just that idea of like, 
You can only refine what you think if you talk about it all the time. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for most people, you know, myself included, sometimes it's like we struggle with wanting to be a generalist. Like we struggle with, oh, you know, I just think about the amount of uh, speaker press kits that I review for our community at Brand Builders Group. And it's like, I can speak on nutrition, health, fitness, mindset, goal setting. And I'm like, no, you can't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I love that too. It's like your entire thing is like, like narrow it down, right? That's the goal of expertise, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can only be an expert in a few things by choice. And so there are two things that you said that I want to kind of loop back to, because I think one of these is going to be like radars, just like bells, ding, 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 going off for our audience. You said that one of the keys that allows you to spend time doing things like writing books and creating content is building a business where you don't have to work all the time. So tell us, how do you do that? (laughs) So I think there's lots of, Obviously, there's so many answers to that question, but I, to me, the core to that question is not about us knowing the right thing to do. It's really more about how do we give ourselves the courage to do the right thing to do? So I know what I should be charging and all that, but if I don't have enough people lined up willing to pay that, mm-hmm. then it just doesn't matter. It's sort of like, like my dad used to say, it's like, wetting your pants in a dark suit, you get a warm feeling, but nobody notices. It's like, you know, it's like, that's not going to really fix anything. So to me, you need to have a really tight positioning that then allows you to build a strong marketing plan Mm -hmm. that then allows you to have excess opportunity that you can waste some of. So if, if you've got two options, two potential clients who want to hire you, then you just choose the one that's the better client. That doesn't take any courage at all. But what takes a lot of courage is to say no to one opportunity that isn't a great fit. So don't put yourself in those positions. Put yourself in a position where you don't have to muster all that courage. It's not a question of knowing the right thing. It's a question of having the right courage. Mm -hmm. So I just added a second person recently, but up for all these years, it was just me, okay? And billings were somewhere between 900,000 and 1.7 million. And that's taking about 10 weeks off a year. I'm not proud of that. We don't use all that money. We don't need all that money. That's not, I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody that way. I'm just saying you can make a lot of money. You don't have to be a big firm to make a lot of money. What that income allows me to do, what it gives me is the freedom to go out and figure things out and then write books. And then that just layers better marketing on top and more opportunity. I can be choosier and choosier. And it's just this cycle that repeats and helps make you better and better, right? The world is just way too complex anymore to pretend that you can know everything about everything. You, I'm feeding back to the comment you just made about the generalists, right? Like people don't pay a lot of money for generalists. They just don't. They want... Like if you're in a messy divorce or some kind of bankruptcy or whatever it is that's or a medical issue in your life, all you care about is hiring somebody that knows exactly how to help you in this situation. And and the money doesn't matter. Right. But when it's like you need something done around your house and you just find a handyman that can do most anything, maybe not great at anything, that's good enough. Right. Like this is how we think. And that's how our clients think, too. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that people struggle with so much is being afraid to be narrow, mm-hmm. right? They've right. got FOMO. <laughs> They've got right. FOMO in the business sense of, well, I don't want to say no to that opportunity. So I'll say yes, even mm-hmm. though I don't really know that very well, but I'll figure it out. Right, right. right? right. I know that in my previous consulting life, I said yes to all kinds of stuff that I should not have said yes to because I'm like, ah, if they can do it, I can do it. I'll figure it out. But then it took 10 times the amount of time and effort and energy and resources to go and do that for the same price mm-hmm. because it wasn't that thing that I could do in my sleep. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that sort of ties in with the whole idea of packaging, productizing mm-hmm. your services too, right? Because you want the efficiency that comes from doing like you should be leading that relationship. You're not simply listening to what a client needs and then you're taking orders like a waiter would and says, oh, you need that, that, that. Okay, now I'll, pu- I'll put together the perfect solution for you. No, it's like you've done this enough that you know generally what they need so much so that you can put together a package and either they buy the package or they don't. And if they buy the package, this allows you to be very efficient in how you work with clients. It also allows you to notice the patterns from one client to the next because you're doing similar things for each of them. So it just, it it really builds your practice better. Yeah, and I love that. So let's talk about that for a second because that was one of the other things that you had said earlier is this idea of productizing, right? Your Mm -hmm. service offerings. So- what do you mean by that? How do you do that? Like, what advice would you give people out there going, yes, yes. Like, how do you do that? Help me, help me. Yeah, yeah. So here's an illustration. So let's say I'm going under the knife for surgery and I'm a little bit nervous and I talk to the, you know, the, the anesthesiologist will come in first and and then the surgeon will come in and they'll ask you some questions and usually it's very perfunctory. But what if you just slowed that down a little bit and you said, hey, I'm nervous. Can you tell me how you do this? Like, what are the steps that you follow? Here's what you don't want to hear to that answer. It's like, well, listen, I've done this a lot. You really need to trust me. I'm just going to cut you open first. That's the first thing I always do. Then I'm just going to kind of look around and figure out what seems like it's in the right place and what isn't. And depending on, you know, and like, no, you want 17 steps in order. You want to know that they have done this many times before, that they're an expert and you're putting yourself in the hands of somebody else. Now, a consulting relationship is not quite as important or critical as that, but your clients have a right to know how you think in advance, what how you think about certain things and how you go about things. Because what they want to know is that you have applied a process in the past. And if you apply the same process for them, it's likely to result in something good for them, right? There's a good result at the end of it. Productizing your service means that you approach things in a pretty normal way and this in a regular way. And that regular way should be informed by your your positioning, right? So my productized service should be very different than yours. And I also use a productized service to protect myself. So if a client comes to me and they're sort of a hot mess, they just need lots and lots of help and I want to help them, right? But they want a fixed price. And I'm thinking, man, I don't have any idea. I I don't want to learn all this on my own dime and figure this out for you, like with an unpaid proposal that's 80 pages long or something. 
I want to protect myself. So if I'm going to give you a fixed price, I'm going to have to shoot really high to protect myself. That's not in your best interest either. So let's start with a diagnostic or a road mapping exercise. Maybe it lasts for two weeks. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's $10,000 or 20 or five or whatever it is. And if you're going to start going down the productized path, that's what you would always start with is how a relationship begins. Picture that you're on a plane with somebody. You're both in first class. You're just chatting. It turns out that they're possibly a client of yours. They're a candidate client. They're not happy with whoever they're using now. And they're so intrigued that they say, you know what? This is really interesting. I can't believe we just kind of ran into each other here. How would you start with somebody like me? You ought to be able to pull up a web page and say, this is exactly how we start. We call it this. It costs this. It takes this long. This is what it involves. That's productizing your service offerings. And that's how you do it to start with at the beginning. And then you can productize everything else as well down the line. Yeah, no, I love that. It's like the first product that you sell is a diagnostic. Yeah, right. I can't tell you what you need until I get in there and know what you need. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, And this ought to be at least as profitable as anything else you do for the client. This should not be a loss leader, right? You shouldn't have on your website, click here for a free 60 minute consultation. It's like, no, you're giving away your very best thoughts at that point. Instead, those early conversations should be about whether it's a good fit, like what you're facing. And let me tell you how I approach things and how I think about these kinds of things. Now, okay, it seems like it's a good fit. Now let's do this diagnostic and really figure out what's wrong. And then we'll spend the rest of the money way more effectively rather than just sort of bouncing around at the beginning without knowing where we're headed. Hi, it's AJ Vaden. And thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. Now, would you also suggest when people come back from a, you know, diagnostic research type of engagement that they also have a, a set suite of offerings? Yes. Or, yeah. So can we talk Absolutely. about that a little bit? Like how do people determine, like, what are my suite of offerings? Yeah. Consultative arrangement. It's really good to think about that one. And so not too far from where you live. I think it's at the Green Hills Mall near where you live, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a cheesecake factory there. And a lot of firms, their list of services looks like the (laughs) Cheesecake Factory menu. 45 pages long. Yes. (laughs) And it's because they're so, they don't have a marketing plan. They're so hungry for opportunity. They're just standing on the corner with wearing a sandwich board sign saying, yes, whatever you need, I can do it. And so their service offering list just looks enormous, right? Instead, experts should have more like the fixed price, sort of that French menu where there are six courses and it's always the same, no substitutes. It's very expensive. You've got to get on a waiting list to get it. 
So the theory is service offering design theory. The main theory there is that most of your client should use most of your services most of the time. Okay, mm -hmm. that's the key. They should use most of your services most of the time. So that should lead all the way back to the very beginning, the conversation you have to assess fit. Are you going to need all of these things? Because this is the best client relationships mean that we do these things for you. Otherwise, and this is particularly true if you have a large firm with a lot of people doing different things, if they don't want to use this one third of your services, then you're going to lose a lot of money because these people are just sitting around, right? So the best advisors lead the relationship and they're going to listen to what the client thinks they need, but then they're going to say, no, uh, this is what you really need. You need this list of services. And so it should be very specific. It should be in order and there should be less and less variety around them. And if more and more clients aren't using a particular thing, then just drop it off. It's hard to be more specific than that, but generally you always want a first one like that road mapping thing you were talking about. And then you probably want four or five or six other things on there. If people want to get a sense of how to productize their services, we just released a completely new website. And I'm not sure your listeners are clients of mine. I'm not saying it for that reason, but they might want to look at the service offerings. So they're all very specific. They're packaged in different ways. They're all priced. That's how you want to think about it. You want to get away from cheesecake factory menu towards the fixed price sort of menu. Yeah. What website should you go to? If you Oh, sorry. Yeah. I didn't even say yeah. right. Uh, punctuation.com. Yeah. It just released yesterday. So punctuation.com. If you want to go just check out what a suite of offerings could look like, you know, one of the things that, you know, I kind of heard you say without you saying it is charge more by offering less. Right. right? right. A huge part of this is like when you offer less, then you can become better at it which yeah. means you can charge more for it, right? You can charge at a, a premium. It, it's like when you have 20, 30 things that you're trying to do, it's like, then you're never doing the same thing enough to go, man, I can literally do this in my sleep. It doesn't yeah. take me near enough time to complete the same task. And don't you think there's sort of a dirty secret in our industry that many of us in our hearts don't really believe we're worth the money? Oh, yeah. And, and so- we over deliver, we keep checking in more than we need to. We write reports that are totally unnecessary and let a, let's just, like if you want to report, take notes. I mean, that's how we ought to think about this stuff, right? But we're so oversensitive about delivering value that we're undercutting ourselves constantly. And if you are, I wrote a more recent book called Secret Tradecraft. And one of the things I said in there is that as you mature in your particular field, you should deliver less for more, mm -hmm. but you're not ripping anybody off. What you're doing is you're removing the noise that you delivered to clients to justify your views because you were not very confident, right? Mm -hmm. And you strip all that stuff out and you get to the core of what they need to hear. And this is really, really valuable because experts know how to cut to the chase, right? And they're not embarrassed by how simple their advice is that anyway i just want to I, I wish i could preach that from the mountaintops i mean <laughs> but that's so true it's like yeah. there is so much power and beauty in the simplicity of things it's like the more complex it is the more overwhelming it feels right, it's like right. i would just, i just finished reading i'm like the last person on the planet to read atomic habits by james mm. clear it's been in my queue for years and i just finally finished reading it last month 
And my husband was like, well, what'd you like about it? And I said, honestly, the simplicity. Yeah. I now know why this book is constantly selling thousands of copies every single week. It's Mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. It's easy to implement, easy to remember. It's not complex. It's pretty common sense, but it's organized in a fashion that makes it feel really easy to do. Mm-hmm. And he's and got the right last why. name, right? Clear. Yeah, he's got the right name. <laughs> but it's like, it's one of those things. It's like when we present things that are simple in nature, on the one hand, it's like, did I just pay all the money for that? But on the other hand, it's right. like, but I can also go and execute. Mm-hmm. And right. there's power in that. So I love that. I love the idea of productizing it by starting with a diagnostic. And then, then you can go, okay, of the things I offer, you need one, four, and five. Right. Exactly. Right. And yeah. I know how to charge for it. We don't have to waste a lot of time figuring that out, right? No scoping questions. I love that. That's so it's good sage advice for all of us where we feel like we have to offer everything to remember. No, you don't. Yeah. No, you it's don't. motivated by our own insecurities more than it is. And when you have a client who's pushing you to deliver everything, they're not a qualified client. Mm-hmm. A, a qualified client trusts you to do just what they need and not waste their time with anything extra. And that's where that courage to say, no, right. you're not right. a me. No, right. I don't do that. Um, that really comes in. I love yeah. that. So, so good. That's such wise advice. Okay. Next question. Cause I know I'm watching the clock and I promised, you know, 45 minutes, but I, I would love to know, like, what are some of these like positioning mistakes that people make? So we've been kind of talking about you know, this idea of like position yourself in a way that you are this expert. So I'd love to talk about how do you position yourself as an expert? But then I think a lot of people, they get what they're really caught up in is they've already made all of these bad choices of saying yes to clients they should have said no to, yes to stuff they don't know. And now they're like, how do I get out of this? Because now you're kind of stuck in it. And even for some people, they've become known for something that they don't even really like doing. And it's far, far away from their true expertise because they kept saying yes to the wrong thing. So I would love to know two things here. One, what are some of the most frequent positioning mistakes and how do we stop doing that? And then secondly, for everyone who is listening, who is in this, you know, consulting, coaching, you know, kind of training, whatever you want to call yourself, author, speaker, a world, like how do you position yourself as that expert in blank? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people... For whatever reason, they make the right positioning decision right out of the gate. But I think that's the minority of folks, right? I'm really talking, you and I are talking about the folks who have kind of wandered this path and things have started very broadly and they just stayed broad forever, right? So the first thing is we're not wanting to manufacture expertise. Whatever our declared tighter focus is, it's going to emerge from something that we've done many times for other people already. Right. So we're not just making up expertise. The difficulty comes, though, in that we have all of these options. So the exercise I usually ask people to go through is, okay, look back over the work you've done. Think of all the times where you have made good money. You have moved the needle on the client's behalf. And if you want, I leave this out. But if you want, did you enjoy the work? So Mm -hmm. those three things. And you're going to end up with this map of maybe five to 20 different options, right? Then the next thing you do is try to draw a circle around the things that 
you're going to include in your new positioning. And this is where the tension comes because your tendency is to want to draw the biggest circle possible so that you don't waste any of the opportunity that you've had, right? Mm -hmm. You did this amazing work for this organization, but it's really the only kind of work you did like that. You don't want to waste it. So you want to fold it in and then you end up with this weird mix of stuff. Like if we're talking about somebody in the medical profession, again, it might be somebody who, that owns a medical practice and a funeral home, and they want both of them on the same business card. It's like, nah, you can't really do that. So you narrow this down and you have to, and here you have to muster up your courage to decide, okay, am I going to boldly claim this new expertise? But remember that this expertise is this new positioning defines the work that you look for, not the work that you accept. So you can still take work for a two-year period or so, and usually then you get tired of it, but you can accept work that doesn't fit the new positioning, but you don't tell anybody about it, right? Now, if you can boldly make that claim on your website, then you're golden. If you can't, if you're afraid that making that bold claim is going to lose you too much opportunity or hack off some of your current clients who don't fit the new positioning, then you create a sub-brand. And this sub-brand is where you focus all of your outbound and inbound marketing efforts. And this allows you to retain this sort of, it's like the best of both worlds. So opportunity that comes in that isn't a fit of the, for the new focus, you can still do that over here in this generalist stuff you'd mucked around in for 15 years, but all of your marketing efforts are focused on the sub-brand and you just let this other thing slowly fade away. That's how you sort of manage your own emotions in the process. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's really good because it's like, I think for a lot of people, they're trying to get out from underneath all this stuff that they don't want to be doing anymore, that right. they somehow pigeonhole themselves into. So instead of saying, oh, nope, you just need to make a decision and say no. Instead of going, no, create a sub-brand, start yeah. positioning towards this, and let the other stuff kind of naturally fade away as this other piece takes off. Is right. That That's a more right? human approach. Yeah. Right. It's a yeah. more human approach. It acknowledges how difficult it is. Like the, the way you said that just a second ago, it's like that logically, literally, that's what you should say, but it's not what we humans do. It's yeah. just too hard. Right. So, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we just need to recognize that this is a hard thing, right? What I don't want to do is I don't want to wake up one day and realize it's like hit myself on the head. It's like, shoot. My business is has been shaped entirely by what other people want me to do. Hmm. Now, in a way, you kind of have to do some of that, right? You can't just create a business that nobody, you have to be addressing market demand. But your clients may be asking you to grow, and maybe that's not in your best interest. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't, right? Your clients want you to do this because they love you. Well, that would make that client happy. But then what's going to happen to your life? I mean, your business has got to serve you, the business. You've got to be in charge of this thing, right? Don't wake up one day and realize, okay, I started this business years ago because I wanted more time, I wanted more money, and I wanted more control. And now I look at my business six years later and I realize I'm spending too much time working. I'm working harder than I was. I'm making less money and I don't have as much control. That is messed up. Right. Mm -hmm. That is messed up and it's your fault. So <laughs> fix it. <laughs> it's so true. It's like I often have this conversation 
with my husband, who's also my business partner about my schedule. And it's like, why is it so full? And it's like, the only person I can look at is myself. And it's like, well, it's so full because I jam packed it full. That's why no one else to blame, (laughs) just me. But it's that, you know, it's back to, it's hard to say no. It is. It is a lot of clarity and a lot of courage to go. That's not good for me. Even though it might feel good when I say yes. Yeah. It's not good for me. Not good for me to be like that. And you've got to make some brutal decisions that are going to disappoint some people, right? I'm not a particularly a religious person, but there's this story of Jesus walking through this town and he had the power to heal everybody. And I've by just touching them. And I'm wondered, you know what? Why didn't he just touch everybody? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's sort of like you're not, we're not Jesus, but we have the power to help a lot of people. And it's really hard to walk away from that. But you know, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first. And some of the things that look really selfish, if you'd never heard that repeated at the beginning of flights all the time, and you saw parents putting their own masks on first before they help their kids, you'd think, well, geez, that is selfish. No, it's how more of us are going to survive than not. And we have to keep, there's so much, when you are good at something and you're a genuinely good person, you want to help everybody, but that is sometimes done at the expense of who you are and the other people in your life. And it's just got to stop. Mm, that is so good. You can say that 1,000 more times because we all need to hear it. We all need to hear it. And the, the truth is, and I love that uh, story about Jesus and it is a relation to how we run our businesses. It's like, we aren't meant to help everyone. Right. Like we are mm-hmm. uniquely positioned to help the people that we were meant to help. Yeah. And if we stay focused on that, we will help more yeah. uh, in the right ways that we are, you know, only we can do. And I love that. That's so good. Um, all right. I've got one last question for you. Okay. How do you make your, your expertise or what I would say your uniqueness, how do you make that more narrow? Like mm-hmm. in this, you know, conversation of like, it's so hard to say no. And we're trying to figure out how to stop you know, being yes people and saying yes to everything. It's like, how do you make your expertise more narrow and more unique? Mm -hmm. So there is some math that can help here. Okay. So you want to develop, so you decide what your area of influence is going to be geographically. Like my audience is in Nashville or my audience is in the South or it's in the U.S. or across the world, whatever it is. You should decide make an initial provisional decision about your expertise, how you're going to describe it. And then you should look for competitors. And if you don't find any competitors, you should not be excited. You should be terrified because that just means that other people have tried it and failed. Probably you want to find some competition, but you don't want to find too much competition. So it's somewhere between 10 and 200 competitors. So you should, now this isn't like quite that specific, but You should ideally find about 10 other people at least who are doing the same thing that you are, but not more than 200. And if you find a lot more than that, then you've got to narrow it further, right? If you find less than that, then you're probably going to run out of opportunity and you need sufficient opportunity. You don't want to go into any specialist sort of advisory role, assuming that you can lock up more than about 1% of the opportunity. And so the math is pretty deep. It's talked about in the book, but that's how you decide exactly how narrow to go. 
And so, so you're broad and you picture yourself walking towards the right solution. And there are two things that will stop you on this path as you walk from generalist to specialist. The first thing that might stop you is courage. And you just got to get over that, right? The second thing, the legitimate thing that would force you to stop on that path is running out of opportunity. So you want to be in that special place where there's not too many competitors, but still enough opportunity. And that math is 10 to 200 competitors. Mm, That's good. I love that. And I think too, it's like many of us, I think we forget to look around and go, what is everyone else doing? Not that we should do what we do based on what others are doing. But it's still good to have that comparative analysis of what is out there. What are people Mm -hmm. doing? What are people charging? Is there enough demand? Is there not enough demand? Not that it would change who we are and what we do, but Mm -hmm. to have that comparative analysis of is there enough demand in the marketplace? Is there too much supply? You know, just basic laws of economics. Yeah. I mean, if we we could apply that to your business. So the people who know branding, there are tens and thousands of those people, right? You apply branding in a very narrow way in your business, and that's personal branding, personal mm-hmm. branding. So you're not doing packaging for or fashion branding. You're doing personal branding, and that's an illustration for the people who are listening about yeah. positioning. And yeah. you know, it's so funny because we left the world of you know corporate consulting and sales. Right specifically in sales, when we started Brain Builders Group. And it was a a very decided decision of, we don't work with companies. Mm -hmm. We work with people. And the hardest temptation in the last five years has been to say no to all the people that we work with. They're like, oh, we love what you're doing for us. Can you come do this for our company? Right. Because it would have been so easy to go, sure. Yeah. Why not? It applies. And it's been the hardest thing and it's where we've been most disciplined of going, we don't work with companies. We, in fact, we had to put it in all of our branding to hold ourselves accountable. Right, right. Right. It's everywhere so that we remind ourselves, oh yeah, we said we weren't going to do that. Well, the best way to understand positioning is that there are a lot more things you don't do than there are things that you do, right? Mm -hmm. So it's choosing a positioning is an exercise in irrelevance. You're becoming irrelevant to more and more people. And in the process, you're becoming more relevant to a smaller group. Love that. And I'll say mic drop on that comment. That was awesome. Such a great interview. I love also the narrow focus of the interview, which is apropos for the conversation. If y'all want to check out uh, David and learn more about all the things that he does, go to davidcbaker.com. I also want to give him a shout out for his, uh, I don't think it's your latest book, but it's the next to last book, right? Next to last book. It's expertise.is. So go to expertise.is. I will put both of those in the show notes. David, if people want to catch up with you on social media, is there one place that you would send them? Probably LinkedIn, David C. Baker, my middle initial sometimes help you get to the right place or just that whatever the slash DCB on LinkedIn, happy to connect with people there. That'd be awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes again. So. Check him out on his website, David C. Baker. Connect with him on LinkedIn and then go check out his uh, book, expertise.is is the website. Pick up a copy, read it. David, pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, AJ. And everyone else, stay tuned for the recap episode and we will see you next time on The Influential Personal Brand. 
That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free 30-day access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we'll get you set up with free access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, just please share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation. 